the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back listeners. Today I have Dr. Burt. Dr. Burt is a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who currently practices at the Arizona Sports Medicine Center, ASMC. He recently gave our Phoenix attendees a lecture on FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, and is here today to discuss it with me. Dr. Burt, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's say we get to the point where the conservative management has not worked, the injection helped for a little bit, it didn't really work that well, and you and your patients decide you want to go to surgery. What is the surgery to manage FAI, and what are your preoperative criteria that would make you consider it? And then on the flip side of that, are there contraindications to uh, the surgical procedure, other than, you know, heart, lung, that kind of stuff? Right, right. Uh, yeah, so uh, typically, you know, after they've failed about three months of conservative treatment, they've done four to six weeks of physical therapy. And they have all the, the, the triad of uh, physical exam findings, clinical symptoms, and radiographic findings of thermoacetic impingement. Then they qualify for surgery. The contraindications to surgery are um, arthritis. So, you know, arthritic patients don't do well with hip arthroscopy. Now, that's obviously, there's, a gray, there's gray zones in uh, patients with early arthritic changes with labral tears. And so the clear cutoff in the literature is two, two millimeters or less of joint space. So that's an absolute contraindication. Then there's some patients with, you know, when we talk about tonus grade, tonus one changes that are, that are still considered possible candidates for hip arthroscopy. But it just, it just depends on activity level and age in terms of patients that are uh, considered candidates for hip arthroscopy. So some people, there was a study that came out that said, you know, over 45, you don't do well with a hip arthroscopy. My, my belief in philosophy is if you're an active individual with relatively preserved chondral surfaces of your hip with a labral tear, I think you're a good candidate. I have operated on patients in their 60s and they do very well, but that's, you know, you're, we're selective about who decides to have surgery with that. And that's obviously a joint decision made between the surgeon as well as the patient so that they understand what they're getting into, the recovery time, and um, you know their prognosis long-term. Dr. Bird, if we talk a little bit about the arthroscopic procedure itself, a couple of things. Could you please give us a description of how you address a labral tear and then the cam lesion or you know any of the bone spurs, how you do that? And then you said in the past with that, it was kind of like you kind of had a, you think that you got enough, but you're, you know, there was no real, I guess, way to measure it other than a range mm -hmm. of motion. But you also described a new technology that kind of gives you information on the resection. I haven't seen that before, and I was hoping you might talk about that a little bit. Just tell us how it works. Hip arthroscopy is an outpatient procedure. It takes about 90 minutes to do the surgery. We use a general anesthesia. So you do go to sleep completely so that we're able to uh, relax the muscles to uh, provide traction on the hip. And so the patient lays down on what it looks like memory foam. And so it's a bed now with memory foam. We don't use... Uh, we do something called postless distraction. So we don't use posts anymore between the legs. And what that does is it gets rid of the risk of get, having a pudendal nerve palsy. So a numb groin or sexual dysfunction after the surgery. So that was a complication in the past, but now we do postless distraction. So there is no post between the legs. And so all the traction is performed with body weight 
and friction on this memory pad that we put the patient on. And we put the patient into Trendelenburg. So their head's down, their feet are up and the incline. And then we, we put their feet in these well-padded boots. And then we pull on the leg with the patient paralyzed and we get distraction in the hip joint. And then we get into the hip joint safely with needles under x-ray. And then we make little incisions and put cameras in there, being very careful not to hit the labrum or the, the cartilage. And then once we're in there, we'll kind of open up the capsule and then look at the labrum, identify the labral tear, kind of document where the cartilage status, then look at the acetabular rim. Um, we'll typically burr down the rim a little bit, uh, specifically in the, the front part of their hip called the subspine region. We'll take down bone there. And this allows the labrum to heal better as well. And so once we do that portion of the procedure, we will drill holes in the acetabulum to put anchors in them and then pass sutures around the labrum, pass them through the anchors, and then reattach the labrum back to the acetabulum and fix it. And I like to do this with traction release. So we're looking at the, the labrum on, uh, touching the femoral head to make sure that the seal, the labral seal is maintained. And that's a very important part of your hip function. So if you don't have a labral seal, and you fix a labrum, the patient won't do well. So we want to make sure that we have a labral seal. So we'll actually fix the labrum with traction release and then pull on the traction again before we set the anchor. And as long as we have a good labral seal, then we know that we've done a good job. So that part takes about 20 to 30 minutes to do. And then the second part of the procedure is we'll shave down that femoral neck. And so we'll do is use a burr and look under x-ray on multiple views. So we want to make it look like a light bulb again we'll shave it down. And this takes about 30 minutes or so to do that part of the procedure as well. We're able to confirm the amount of resection using new technology called a hip, hip check. And what that does is it has a little iPad that's sterile that's right next to me while we're doing the surgery. And it actually creates a little line on the femoral neck of how much you should resect. So you can actually look at how much you need to resect and it will the line will go from orange to green when it's an acceptable amount of resection. So it's a nice tool to have in there to make sure that you've done an adequate job in all different planes. So we get we get six different views to make sure that we've gotten in all the different views and planes. And once we confirm it's green everywhere, we know we've done a good job. The other thing we do at the end is we'll check the hips motion afterwards. So you you basically take the patient and flex the hip up into a fader with the patient asleep. And then I'll look at it with the scope to see if the, the labrum's hitting the femoral neck. And if there's no evidence of labral movement with fader testing and then abduction as well, then we know that we've done a good job and that should not re-tear. So those two kind of, for one, the fluoro and then the, uh, the dynamic testing at the end is, are kind of two insurance, insurances that there will be no residual impingement. And once we do that, once we're done with that, we close the capsule up with stitches that we've opened and then close the skin. And then uh, we bring them to the recovery room and then um, give them a nerve block in the recovery room and then they go home. And it's a really nice surgery. Dr. Burt has some nice video of the procedure. Hopefully you can get the videos and, and take a look at this. And we're going to try to get a little bit of it on our YouTube channel as well. Dr. Burt, if we talk about surgical outcomes, is hip arthroscopy for labral tears FAI is it typically successful? And what would be some conditions that might limit the utility or the benefit of a hip scope? In general, it is successful. So we've gotten better at it. The technology has improved. I think the techniques improved. Our understanding of hip pathology has improved. So we now know different techniques that provide better outcomes. And so in general, we see 80% success at five in five-year outcomes. Um, we're repairing more than debriding now. So I think it's 
historically we're, we were debriding labrums when we first started doing this procedure. Now we're repairing. That is the norm. The you know, return to play for athletes is anywhere from 80 to 100% based on sports uh, type. So athletes do return at a high level and are able to function at a high level with success. The limitations are probably the two big ones are hip arthritis and then dysplasia. So anybody who has a center edge angle under 18 degrees, we typically do not do a hip arthroscopy in isolation just because the dysplasia is a risk factor for one dislocation after hip arthroscopy and two is just re-tear. So we do not recommend doing a hip scope in isolation for hip dysplasia, but we, we are starting to do those with what we call uh, PAOs or periathetic osteotomies. And so patients who have that, we can get a hip scope to repair the labrum shape down the bone and then do the PAO concomitantly um, to treat dysplasia. What is the incidence of hip osteoarthritis if someone has a scope for FAI or if they don't have a hip scope and they have labral tear in FAI? Do you preserve the hip joint by doing this and delay the onset of arthritis, or does that even play a part? We think so. There's no definitive uh, data on that yet that this prevents arthritis. I think there's some early data trending towards that, that we do see some um, patients that, you know, doing this procedure, we believe will prevent it. And the concept is there. The data is not. But, you know, it makes sense when you have you see the amount of cartilage damage in somebody with a large cam lesion um, and, you know, progressing um, to arthritis. And younger patients we see in their 40s who come in with arthritic hips and they have large cam lesions that were left untreated. So the evidence is there. It's just we don't have the, the data yet to show that. So if somebody still hurts, if somebody still has their groin pain post-op, what's the most likely reason? Number one is just incomplete cam resection. So if there's still extra bone there, then that's the number one reason. Other reasons are scar tissue formation. We do see scar tissue formation between the labrum and the capsule, and that can be, that's more commonly formed if you don't close the capsule. So somebody doesn't routinely close capsules, we do see scar formation, and that can be pain kind of around that three to four month mark after surgery, doing well up until that point when they get back into higher end activities. The other issue is just arthritis. So typically arthritis is, you know, cartilage wear and they're getting pain from their arthritis. Dr. Burt, the last little bit that I have the post-op course. Can you please share with our listeners what's your usual protocol for rehab? And then one part of that is when can athletes resume sports? Typically patients are put on crutches minimum two weeks. So they're touchdown weight bearing or 20 pounds weight bearing for two weeks. And the reason we do this is just to um, protect the capsule, let the capsule heal a little bit so that when they start restrict range of motion for roughly about six weeks in terms of certain motions they can do, once that capsule's healed at six weeks, we let them start stretching. So we try to get them to restore the range of motion by three months. We'll do more uh, strengthening in the uh, weight-bearing setting at that six-week mark and on. And then typically at that three-month mark, we'll let them start a um, jogging program. So uh, we do have them uh, jogging at three months on a treadmill with a therapist, and then they can start doing more outdoor jogging. Plyometrics is then typically around that three and a half, four month mark. So I tell patients typically four months before they can go back to any sort of pivoting, cutting, twisting type of sports and easing into it. So most athletes kind of have that window of return to sport four to six months. And it's individualized at that point. It's just how they're, how they're doing in therapy. You know, they're introducing new exercises individually every, every session. And as long as they can tolerate it, they can increase it. 
And if they're not having any pain with it, their motion is maintained, their strength is improving. Then we let them get back out onto the, you know, whatever sport, practice a little bit without contact. You know, if they're feeling good with practice, you know, the last thing we introduce is uh, back to contact in, in that sport of choice. And so typically what I tell patients is about four to six months back to sports where they're, they're comfortable and able to uh, perform at a high level. Dr. Burt, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. And is there anything else that we need to go over for FAI for our listeners? The biggest thing to remember is um, patients that come in with an MRI finding of a labral tear doesn't necessarily mean it, mean it need to be treated because there's a lot of patients I see who come in and have a labral tear, but they have no symptoms of labral pathology. So you really need all three. You need the the clinical signs, the physical exam findings, as well as the radiographic findings to diagnose FAI. So don't, don't, uh, you don't necessarily need to treat a labral tear unless it's symptomatic because there are patients out there who are asymptomatic with labral tears on the MRI when they get an MRI. So they never knew they had a labral tear until they got their MRI. So asymptomatic labral tears do not need treatment. Dr. Burt, thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.